Well, hello, Dorvope. How are you guys doing? Yeah, good. My name's Josh, I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, man, it's so great to see all of you. Hey, um, uh, many of you were here last week. And uh, as you can see, it's pretty crazy as we still are seeing the church kind of return to some sort of level of normalcy. I mean, last week was the same Sunday a year ago was 150 people less than this year. Um, God is doing something in our midst and bringing a lot of new folks into the church. And if you're new, we just wanna welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. Um, but it also raises a lot of questions around what is the mission and the vision of the church. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to the sermon. Um, I think that the Holy Spirit uh, did a good job of getting me out of the way and uh, communicating uh, what I hope is, um, sorry, I'm gonna fix this really quick. That should be good, Alex. Um, realize that a lot of people didn't even really know the history of Door of Hope and that the, that the basis of Darcy and I founding the church back in 2009 was built upon this kind of dream that I had of God bringing a revival to Portland. And, and the deep conviction that I, that I had come to coming out of a, a six-month sabbatical that I had kind of forgotten that vision and even really stopped believing in it in a way. And God convicted me deeply during the 22 days of prayer um, and study through Psalm 119 that we did in December. And he, I just felt the Lord consistently asking me, when did you stop believing in the vision that I gave you for this church? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be presumptuous and say that because of Door of Hope or this vision that we're gonna see thousands upon thousands come to faith in one glorious, massive ex uh, moment, although I hope that that happens. Um, I, would I think that this generation is ready for its own revival. Um, I, coming, uh, coming to faith in the Calvary Chapel movement, I definitely um, got tired of hearing about the revival that happened in the late 60s, early 70s. I'm like, yeah, cool. Like, what about now? What's, what's happening right now? Uh, and when I say revival, I just mean God working in a magnified way, the same way he always works. Every revival uh, is what I would call almost a precursor or the way that God, uh, it's like a shaking that, is, that shakes the world, that reminds us that the God that we believe in and the work of Jesus and the, and the role of the church, uh, that God is, is not forgotten his covenantal promises, <laughs> that he's not, he's not given up on the world, that he's still at work. We live in the age of grace and that they're, they're precursors to the great earthquake that will come when Jesus returns. And they're to, meant to remind us that God is very much here and it's possible that we just didn't know he was in this place. Um, and so my prayer for revival, it must begin with personal revival for each of us a reawakening to the presence of the living Christ, a deep desire to be set apart and committed to him and for him. I just wanted to say that last week, uh, for those of you who are here, this doesn't happen to me very often, but I, uh, and thank God, because it's very stressful. I had a sermon uh, in the book of Jonah that I was gonna preach, and at nine o'clock, I felt the Lord say, no. And I'm like, I don't know what to preach. And I was, I was just getting ready to walk out the door to come to church, it was like 9.15 or something. And the Lord gave me that outline. And I stepped up here with no notes, just that outline. And I was like, please Jesus, show up. You know, I once heard a, thing, a preacher say in Philip Brooks, How to Preach, he said, the best preaching I have ever heard is extemporaneous preaching, which is preaching without notes. And he goes, and the worst preaching I have ever heard is extemporaneous preaching. <laughs> He goes, therefore, manuscript. <laughs> it's like, don't risk it. Uh, and so the risk was a, was a great one, but I think that God kind of beautifully showed up um, and gave us a word. And what I focused in on last week are what I believe are five spiritual strongholds that God is trying to shake the church free from in this kind of post-pandemic season. And, the, and those five strongholds uh, were, first of all, uh, a spirit of carnality, not taking the call upon our lives to be separated unto God, not taking the call to, um, to put to death the old self 
uh, and to be, become that new creature that we are in Christ seriously. Continuing to fool around, as Lewis says, with, with drink and sex and the pleasures of this world as a way of escaping the, the difficulty of existence. I talked about the spiritual stronghold of pride, and that is those that in their mind think that they are right with God, but in actuality they have elevated themselves above those around them. They are always looking down at their neighbor rather than being their servant. And how deeply damaging, in fact, it says that pride is an abomination unto God. And spiritual pride is alive and well in the church today. And all of us are prone to it because pride is essentially the root of all sin. And none of us can escape sin, which is why we need to be in Christ, abiding in Him. I talked about the spiritual stronghold of legalism. And in many ways, legalism is the most dangerous of the spiritual strongholds because the legalist often believes in the core of his being, in the core of her being, that they are right with God. And they are right with God based upon their, their particular ability to uh, live out a life of what I call selective sanctification. They have set up parameters around their lives that allows them in their conscience to feel all right before God and men, when in actuality, they are not depending upon the spirit and the work of Jesus for their salvation. They think they are somehow contributing to it through their own efforts. I think the spirit of despair was one based upon the many emails that I received from so many of you is, is one that many resonated with. Coming out of COVID, seeing the state that a city like Portland is in, uh, despair is something that is that is, is so common in our age. Nothing is needed in the world uh, like a peaceful presence, which is what the church should be providing. But despair is that place where it just is that overwhelming sense of anxiety because we can't see past what is directly in front of us or what our experience is right now. And we've lost our sense of hope that the best is actually yet to come. And then that final stronghold I talked about, which is which is a really, really damaging one. And that is the stronghold of, of lovelessness. And lovelessness kind of con is, correlates to, to pride and to legalism. And that's that idea that, that I'm all right with God, but I really, you know, it's like, what's the common bumper sticker? I don't have a problem with Jesus. I just have a problem with his followers. Often Christians have that very view. It's one of the reasons people leave the church. I like Jesus, I just don't like the church. Well, what they mean by that is I don't like other Christians, which is a pretty presumptuous thing to think that somehow they're somehow more likable. Every person that's left the church because they say the church has hurt them, are, are, I would argue, are blind to the ways that they contribute to the hurt. And their escape from the church doesn't mean that they are somehow innocent. They don't get to wash their hands of the own, their own sin that they brought to it in abandoning the very mission that Jesus himself established as the means by which he would bring the gospel to the earth uh, is deeply troubling. So here's what I want us to focus in on today because it's a word that I think is essential to answering what should be what should we be looking to if we want to, want to truly allow God to shake away these strongholds from our lives? And I think it's wrapped up in the word holiness. Holiness. I want to just begin by making a few statements about holiness because whatever one of those strongholds is your stronghold, and all of us have a leaning toward, the fact is, is we probably will shift through them, <laughs> maybe have many of them at once. Uh, because I know that I can wake up in the morning absolutely zealous for the things of Jesus, by afternoon be a raging hedonist, and by the evening be a practical atheist. <laughs> so just know the, the, the fickleness of the human heart is amazing how we can move through these various, these various ways that are actually in opposition to what God has proclaimed over us if indeed we are Christians. First of all, for the carnal, the word holiness is like a cosmic killjoy. It's a way, we hear that word and we think of, and <laughs> notice I said we, 
because I just immediately placed myself in that category of carnal. Uh, and I would say one of my weaknesses is, uh, is I'm a person who lives under the motto, more is more. Um, and so I enjoy the gifts of God that he has given to us in this, on this planet. I enjoy food, but often I enjoy it too much. I enjoy drink, which often I enjoyed it too much, which is why I don't drink. There's, there's, I, my tendency is toward an excessiveness. And for the carnal person, I know for myself in the past when I would hear the word, word holy, I would immediately think prudish, Puritan, not fun. Like the very essence of people that I do not want to spend eternity with. It's like the people that don't know how to laugh at a boyish joke, you know, where potty humor is off-putting, um, where, 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 you know, the, the one that's like, the, the, it's like they, they're so disciplined in every arena of their life, it's like they don't even have time to smile, uh, which is actually what the Puritans were notorious for. I actually don't really enjoy, I think there's much that can be learned from the Puritans. The one thing they all could have used is an editor because they just said, they wrote like I speak, just too much, too much. Um, <laughs> but a lot of their concept of holiness had to do with what they were against, what they did not do. For the proud and legalistic, I think that holiness is a word that actually leads to an ever deepening smug self-justification. It's actually misunderstood, it's misapplied. It's the, it's the set apart to an extreme where <laughs> where it's like, I know I'm right with God and I gotta do all that I can to protect myself from, the, uh, from the, the offensive effects of a pagan and secular world. For the despairing, it becomes a word that provokes fear. It, it, it's, a, it's a word that, that seems to further put a nail in the coffin of the feeling that I just can't do it. I cannot live up to what God is commanding me to live up to. And I think for the loveless, it just leads to greater hostility. So here's what I want you guys to understand today. When we actually understand the word holiness rightly, for the carnal, it leads to a purity that sets us free. For the, the proud and the legalistic, it leads to humility and grace. For the despairing, it actually leads us back to hope. And for the loveless, it brings us into the ability to love those that are not like us. So I just want to establish that as a foundation because many of you right now have a wrong understanding of what holiness is. And let me just tell you this. It's a word that we can't avoid. It appears 498 times in the Old Testament and over, over 196 times in the New Testament. So to me, that tells me it's a pretty significant word. Just so you know, the first time the word appears, do you know where it first appears? It actually appears in the, in the Genesis, in the creation account. And it says this, um, and I think this is a really fascinating, fascinating thing. It says that by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, the first time the word appears, it is a word that is applied by God to something he has created. Uh, he rests from his work, or, or, it's, or I should say, it's a word that God applies to his finished work. He calls the day holy because, the day, because he sees the world as created in a way that, is, that it, it was what he intended it to be. When God says, and it was good, it means it was what I meant it to be. <laughs> but that word, weirdly, becomes something that is applied to God himself. So how do we take that? If it's something that God says about the seventh day, that the day is holy because on that day he, he ceased from his work because he was contented with his work. What does that say that holy means then? 
Holiness does not mean primarily, although it is, I would say, an outworking of it, that God is set apart from sin. What it means is that God is not divided within himself. That his whole being works in alignment with his perfections. That his love, his love is not in contradiction to his wrath, for his wrath is not an essential part of his being. It is the outcome of his being, being of his love being violated. His, love, his, his holiness is that God is undivided in himself. He is and can only be what he is, which is good. So what does that mean when we are told to be holy? What does that say about what it means to be unholy? It means in its core that we are divided in ourselves and at enmity with the one who is not divided within himself. In other words, something has entered into the creation that God said, this is what I intended it to be and made it what he did not intend it to be. In other words, it became, it became uh, infected with something that was produced within his creation but not created by the creator himself. God is not the creator of sin. God created a creation and, and beings with limited free will, and I say limited very firmly, uh, that, that somehow sin, something that is, has no part of God, that has no part of his essential being, which is he is the author of life. So in many ways, sin is non-existence. It's non-being, it's illusion, it's shadow, and yet it's active and destructive and brings death. That thing which is not of God and not what God intended is what creates what we would call unholiness. It's called sin. And when sin entered into the world, it made the holy God now at odds with his own creation because the creation became something he did not intend it to be. Now the good news in all of this uh, is that God in his holiness does not mean that he separated himself from sinful humanity. In fact, the scripture declares the exact opposite. It says that he who knew no sin, God, Jesus, the son of God, the second person in the Trinity became sin, which means that God has the ability to take that which he did not create nor intend and somehow weave it back into his redemptive purposes to accomplish the very thing that he cannot not be, which is holy. Now, if that's making your head hurt, good. It's making mine hurt as I speak it. Um, so here's the point. Holiness is not some sort of prudishness where we stop having fun. Holiness is about becoming whole once again. Now, here's the thing. It's so fascinating. Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you that you may have peace. But in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And I would argue that to be unholy is to be in bed with the world, which makes us divided within ourselves. And to be in Christ means that we become conduits of grace in the world that has fallen and actually find peace within ourselves. In fact, to be at peace with the world means that you are at enmity with God. To be at peace with God, to be holy, means that you now have entered into a war of righteousness. And that war of righteousness is not fought with the weapons of the world. It's fought with the weapons of grace. It's fought with the weapons of prayer. It's fought with the weapons of being the least. It's about being, it's about being broken bread and poured out wine. It's about representing the sacrificial lamb, which means that our lives now are laid down for the good of those that are actually at enmity with God. Because when we reflect the sacrifice of Jesus in our community and in our lives when we become holy we become we become a people that as Jesus said when I be lifted up I will draw all people to myself 
What you need to remember though, is that though all people may be drawn, not all people will respond the same because as Jesus draws, he is also the sword that divides. And this is my point, guys. Holiness in the church does not allow the world to remain neutral about Jesus. Holiness in the church does not allow the world to remain neutral about Jesus. And I think the church's ineffectiveness in the world is because the world actually doesn't care because they do not see us as a threat, nor do they see us as a hope. We're not dividing the world. The world is just ignoring us now. So how do we become a holy people? Well, let's begin by this. Holiness, first and foremost, means to be in Christ. I just want to say that for the carnal Christian, the, the proud Christian, the legalistic Christian, the despairing Christian, the loveless Christian, although all of those words that I applied to Christian puts you at odds with what it means to be a Christian, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily not a Christian. Uh, in fact, I would I add Christian to it because as Christians, we often become those things. So... The first thing I want you to know is that if you indeed are a Christian and Christ is in you, you are declared holy, but you have not learned to become the thing that you are. So look what it says here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses nine and 10. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The here I am, I have come to do your will. The writer of Hebrews is saying that that is Jesus. And Jesus is is one who is better than Moses, one who is better than than the Levitical priesthood, one who is better than the tabernacle, one who is better than the sacrifices of the priests because he himself is the final mediation of God, because he himself is the new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of the Levite. It's an eternal priesthood because he himself is also the sacrifice itself. And he is a once and for all sacrifice. And the purpose of Hebrews is to show us the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And he says, and by that will, we have been made holy. Notice, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, look what it says in Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. All of us who are born again and regenerated by the blood of Jesus have been declared perfect. How many of you, if I could get a show of hands, view yourselves as perfect? But you are, but you're not. What was Luther's famous line? Jesus saved me from sin. Why didn't he save me from sinning? The great complicated reality of the gospel is this, is that there is a now and not yet reality to our lives. Remember when I gave the message on the similitudes? You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth that the Christian life is about becoming what we already are. And and here's the thing, this tells us something about holiness, that holiness is not something that we achieve by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's something that is found in Jesus, which tells us that the most important thing we must ask ourselves is, am I in him? (laughs) Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me. That word abide, literally, it's, 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 a, it's a word that gives us location. It's about being in Christ. That means that Christ is the dwelling place of the believer and the safest place is to be in him. Now the good news is that Jesus says, I will leave the 99 to go find that. Here's the thing, all of us will be the one that wanders because if Jesus is the only way, that means there's a thousand other ways to go. 
and we're going to get off the beaten track, which is what I want to say too. Holiness, the holiness that is proclaimed over the bride of Christ, his church, tells us why it's so important that we, that we live life with one another because God uses his very people who are conduits of his actual presence to be the ones who continually bring back our wandering selves into that identity that's in Jesus. We need to constantly remind ourselves that we're not here to learn more about Jesus. We're not here to try harder. We are here to meet with the living Christ and know him more deeply. The most important question, I just got done teaching uh, Ecola Bible College, um, uh, the book of Ephesians with, uh, and I had Ian teach Monday and Tuesday for me. Um, he had to do four classes uh, because I was reading the audio book um, for my book, and, uh, which was way harder than I thought. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I took over on Wednesday and Thursday um, and Friday. And I had this, this, this student come up to me after the class. She said, you know, Ian, like, he actually was teaching us Ephesians. <laughs> and I'm like, that's why I sent him. So that I wouldn't have to. Um, I said, listen, I'm so sorry. This mic is driving me crazy. And you too, I'm sure. Um, this is what I said to her. I'm like, listen, if I want to teach you the book of Ephesians verse by verse, I would do that in probably six months at my church. But I'm asked to come to a class and teach you an entire book filled with dense doctrine in a few days through a few sessions. And most of you here are 18 to 19 year old students who have lived your entire lives uh, and have based your entire faith upon the fumes of your parents' faith. And I have you for a few days. I'm going to take the themes of Ephesians because I am far less concerned about you just having more Bible verses known. I am far more concerned with the central question, do you know Jesus? Do you know the Jesus of Ephesians? Do you know what it means to be chosen in him before the foundation of the world? Do you know what, it, what Paul means when he says, and I, for this reason I get down on my knees and I pray that you may enter into an, to an insurmountable knowledge of his un, inexhaustible love? Do you know what it means to be new creation and new community and to enter into a new kind of warfare because there is a battle for our souls that is occurring? And I want to ask those questions because it is those questions that will enable you to enter into the book of Ephesians and have an understanding that will lead to a deeper relationship. And I think that this is the purpose. This is why God has given to the church both teachers and preachers and prophets. And I felt my call this week is to be more of a prophetic voice. This is the reality of the world in which you live. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what it will cost you. Do you know him? Do you love him? You see, he is our holiness. It's not something that we achieve because we read our Bibles every year. The word is holy because it is inspired by the holy God. But Christ is the source of our holiness. It is not something that we create in ourselves. Just as Christ is the source of agape love, we do not have the ability to love with the love of God unless the love of God has been supernaturally placed within to our hearts. The same goes for holiness. We don't, we don't work toward a holiness that is not yet ours. We work toward a holiness from the fact that we are already proclaimed perfect and holy because we are in Christ. So maybe the most important question you could begin with is, are you actually in Christ? And I wanna just, having stated that, I think it's time the Door of Hope gets much, much more practical with these kinds of theological questions. And I wanna just state this, and I, and I make myself available, and I mean this. If you are a person that's coming to Door of Hope and you do not yet know Jesus, you have not put your faith in Jesus, but you've been exploring the gospel and you've been coming, because I know over the years, many people come and they listen to me preach or whoever's preaching week after week and and they're feeling that draw but they don't know where to go with that if you don't know Jesus you have not put your faith in him 
I would encourage you to email me. It's just josh at dorofopdx.org and I will have coffee with you and I will answer every question that you have because our deepest desire for you here, and if not me, one of the other pastoral staff, one of the elders, we want you to know Jesus and discover the freedom that, that it is to be in him. And this is why I give opportunities to respond to the gospel in services, but sometimes people just have more questions. And I've seen more people come to faith in my office through conversations after coming to church for months, uh, which tells us that people coming to faith, it's the fruit of the community itself being a witness to the reality of Jesus, the living Christ. If you have questions about that, you're sensing the light of God in this community. Hopefully you're sensing a community that has come to meet with Jesus. Reach out to me. I would love to meet with you. Introduce yourself after church and we'll make a time. I will make time for you and I mean that. Holiness begins with Jesus. Secondly, holiness means to be set apart. And I would even add that maybe a better word than to be set apart. I should say holiness means to be dedicated. In Exodus 19, verse 6, this is, by the way, where Peter gets the language that he uses uh, in 1 Peter that you are, you are called to be a royal priesthood. Uh, he's... he's He's hinting back to God's proclamation through Moses over the children of Israel. And he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Notice that, a kingdom of priests. They became, unfortunately, because of, their, of the inward turn of their election upon themselves at the expense of the world. Instead of becoming a kingdom of priests to the world, they became a kingdom with priests as a protection against the world which isn't what God intended. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, you are called to reflect my undivided self to a divided world. You are called to be a people that are dedicated to me, which means that you will be dedicated to what? His mission. And what is his mission? Well, we have much greater clarity on this from the New Testament. What did Jesus say before his ascension? What is the great commission? Therefore, go into all nations and make disciples, teaching them everything that I have taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I have chosen you that through you I can bring my saving message to the whole world. This is the purpose of the church which tells me that one of the great problems that was birthed out of COVID that was revealed immediately by the fact that churches across the nation and much of the Western world were cut in half and people have not come back because we forgot that the purpose of the church is to be a witness to the living Christ and instead we turned our election into some kind of navel gazing where it was about me and Jesus. Which is why so many people say, I don't need the church. When I, COVID happened, I've discovered I could listen to the greatest communicators in the world from the comfort of my home. Listen, the purpose of the church isn't to come and hear me speak or any preacher speak for that matter. The purpose of the church is to come together to witness to the reality of Jesus to a lost world. Which is why all of you should be, including me, inviting non-believers to come and see what it is that you believe. A holy people are dedicated to the mission of Jesus. You're not just, listen, God does not, you set yourself apart from sin, but you didn't dedicate yourself to the mission of Jesus? Shame on you. What a failure to understand the gospel. You don't swear, you don't sleep around. Well, when's the last time you invited your neighbor to church? I'd much rather you have a problem with drinking than be mute when it comes to witness. I think there will be many alcoholics in heaven. I'm concerned, though, about those that say they love Jesus but have zero concern for those that are perishing. In fact, it's almost hard for me to use the word loveless and Christian in the same sentence because I think a loveless Christian is actually not a thing. Leviticus 40, 11, 44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. They were to consecrate themselves, that is, be dedicated 
to the heart of God. And how has God defined himself? How has he defined himself? God has said this. He has said this over, over, his, over his people. What did he declare to Moses? The Lord, the Lord your God is compassionate. He's merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. To be dedicated to him means that you will reflect that. It doesn't say the Lord, the Lord your God, judgmental. Hard, hard to please. Hard to satisfy. Hard to know. That's not what it says. No, it says God is compassionate. It says he brings forgiveness. Yes, it does say that he will not leave sin unpunished. How could he not leave sin unpunished? Because sin is that which violates his holiness, his undivided self. Sin is the very thing that robs him of what he loves, which is people. It's, it's a big problem. But man, I don't know when, it ha when, when Christians decided that their responsibility is wrath rather than grace. Because I'm pretty sure that wrath belongs to God. And if God has spared us wrath and has shown us who did not deserve it grace, we should probably move towards our brothers and sisters with the same kind of, the same kind of grace that we have been shown. I think sometimes our harshness with others actually is a revelation of the fact that we ourselves have not truly experienced the grace that we so fully do not deserve. Holiness is not some sort of prudish sinlessness. Holiness in, in its first definition is something that is a gift from God. And we become holy because we are in Christ. But holiness is also as now children of God, we are called and we are chosen that is given a task or a responsibility to be a reflection of the undivided God that we are set apart and dedicated to his purposes and his plans, which is redemptive in its nature. What are we told? That God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus, and we are in Jesus, which means that we are to be ambassadors, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, of re reconciliation, correct? Your holiness is defined by your dedication to being an, being an ambassador of his reconciliation. And if you feel convicted by my challenge to ask you the question, when's the last time you invited someone to just come to church or told someone about your love for Jesus? And maybe you haven't told anyone about Jesus because you don't actually love him. And the most honest thing you can do is this, know this, he is faithful when we are faithless. And if you don't love Jesus, just ask him, Lord, Give me love to love you. He wants to honor that. Help me to understand the depths of your love for me. Because if you are lacking in a love for Jesus, you're not gonna tell, pe you're not gonna tell people about Jesus because the preacher scared you. Uh, like, that's not, you're like, maybe for a day, you're like, dang it, I think I might be going to hell. Hey, you need to hear about Jesus. But I don't actually... Love him, nor you. That's not very compelling. <laughs> like, I believe you believe what you're saying, but why do you seem so scared? <laughs> there should be a calm confidence, a joy, a peace that flows out of a graciousness that's been birthed in your heart because you know that, that on your worst stinking day, Jesus is crazy about you. You need to be like Will Ferrell. I'm in love and I don't care who knows. And that's a scene from Elf. One of my favorite, greatest Christian dialogues ever in a movie. We should be so in love that we don't care who knows. In fact, we actually care that people don't know and can't wait to tell them about him because we ourselves have tasted his love. He who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much, loves much. What does it say uh, here? In 1 Peter 1, 15 verse 16, through 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That is, don't be divided. Don't be divided. Your affections should be set supremely on Christ and it should be reflected in how you live. 
which doesn't mean that you give up the things of the world. It means that you don't hold them with a tight grip. And the only thing you're clinging to with everything that's in you is Jesus himself, which then actually allows you to, to maneuver with a flexibility in the world without being consumed by it. It actually allows you to enjoy the world without taking it very seriously. And I think that that actually is a greater sign of holiness than, than, the, um, than the caricatures of the Puritan prudishness, prudishness uh, that actually wasn't that much of a caricature, if I could be honest. Holiness is also the outworking of sanctification. And it is true that in Scripture often the concept of being holy is directly corresponding to sexual immorality. And I think that sexual immorality, even in Paul's conversations around the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, which is not a wrath of God striking people dead with lightning because they sinned. In fact, God in his graciousness, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, which means he doesn't say, behold, I, I kick the door in. Although he does seem to do that with, with Saul on the road to Damascus. And I would say God is sovereign, which means he's free and he can do whatever he wants in accordance with his purposes and his characters. But for the most part, he's a gentleman and he knocks. And, and the fact is, is that many people just say, yeah, I'm not going to open that. We're not, we're not, you, not today, Lord, not today. But here we see uh, that the wrath of God in Romans 1 is this. Therefore, God gave them over, over to a debased mind to do those. Things. He allowed them to give, they gave themselves over to their divided selves. But even that, there is, there is a, a restorative desire in it. It's the same language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians when it is discovered that there is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. And he says, put that man out of fellowship. Give him over, to give his body over to Satan that his flesh might be destroyed and that his soul might be saved. In other words, give him over to his sin um, and that he might discover the, the depths of his own depravity and come to an end of himself that he might, like the prodigal, come back. Because in 2 Corinthians, it seems as if that man came back and repented and the Corinthian church was unsure whether they should let him in or not. And Paul says, I have already forgiven him. If he's repented, then re return him. The wrath was a giving over that was meant to be restorative, to lead to repentance. Because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And sexual immorality is the natural outcome of people given over to their own, their own desires. Sigmund Freud, when he says to actually repress the natural instincts of the human heart is, is to actually cause damage to the psyche, that we must be willing to open up Pandora's box. But, sweet Lord, I mean, an infant if they were capable of, if they were to go on their natural instincts, if you were not to feed them, they would club you to death for their food. The natural instincts of the human heart is not generally good. To just go with every impulse, to be drawn by every desire, to act upon every appetite without any restraint is by nature to put yourself at such at such odds within yourself that it will only cause fragmentation in a way that will blow you apart. And we see that all around us. You know, isn't it interesting that the way to diminish crime in our current culture of Portland, specifically Portland, is just to stay that it's not a crime anymore. In Cormac McCarthy's uh, new genius novel that I read twice in two weeks because it's so good. First of all, any man at 89 years old that can release two novels that are more brilliant and erudite than anybody even half his age uh, gets kudos from me. It should give us great hope that you don't have to just continue to diminish to where your brain has no power whatsoever. 89 years old, and he just released, in my opinion, the best novel of the year, The Passenger. And one, it, the book is definitely a reflection on a guy who's close to death. He's come to the end of his life, and he is reflecting on the most, the deepest and troubling questions that he sees 
in our modern age. And there's a character, this terrible person, John, who's highly educated and very erudite, but he's definitely a charlatan. But he says, he goes, one can't be a rue or, or one can't be a scoundrel or a thief uh, or you can't even be an alcoholic anymore. You can't be a drug, a drug addict. You can only be a user. He's like, he goes, criminals are lining up to stand up for their rights that we might, we might say that the cannibal or the murderer deserves the right to be who he or she is. And, he, and he, he gets frustrated. He goes, I don't, as a bad person, it's kind of frustrating that I'm not allowed to be called bad anymore. <laughs> it's essentially, it's kind of this comic and tragic uh, that he, he's like the world needs, he goes, the world of righteousness needs male factors. <laughs> and I was like, I found that such a profound statement. We don't, the, our answer to brokenness is just don't call it brokenness. There's a great book actually written by a Jewish man, it was highly controversial, in which Hitler escaped and was found in the jungles of South America. And I cannot remember the name of it, I read it like probably 10 years ago. He's found in the jungles of South America and he's put on trial. And he's asked the question in the trial, why did you want to exterminate us? Why did you want to rid the earth of the Jews? And he said, if I could rid the earth of the Jews, I could rid the earth of the law that their God gave to the world. It's a fascinating idea. But I think that's what modern culture is doing right now. If we can eradicate the concept of sin, then it's not sin, is it? If we can remove all boundaries of truth and there is no truth, then everyone is right in their own eyes. But holiness is, is something that is grounded in Jesus who is what? the truth. And truth is not a bunch of empty ideology. Truth is a relational reality that is built upon the ground of being, which is God himself. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to what? Control his own body in holiness and honor. There it is. In holiness means to, that you know how to control your body in a way that you know how and this is what it actually means. You know how to submit to God in a way that allows God the right to be God in and through your life. That's a faith that works. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us to impurity but to holiness. Impurity leads to divided selves. Holiness is about being whole, once again. About being new creation. About being in Christ. I love this because it says, for everything in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So in contrast to that is that the one who is holy is actually able to maneuver through an unholy world and actually enjoy the things of the world without any longer living in despair and a guilty conscience because Jesus is the supreme affection. And so this is one of the questions. We are called to be a people that serve the kingdom of God. What we have to ask about our own lives is this. If I can just give you some practical insight on this right now of what does it mean to actually be sancti a sanctified people. It means that we must ask that everything we do, can that thing, that habit, that thing, can it come into service to the kingdom of God? Can it exist under the umbrella of the kingdom of God? And if it right now does not, if it's something that sits outside of the kingdom of God, can it be repurposed to serve that, that kingdom? And if it cannot be repurposed, then it must be put away. And only God can do that deadly work in our lives by revealing to us an area. So for me, you can have a glass of wine in the kingdom of God. Someone just asked me, so how many glasses of wine... <laughs> 
is not sin versus how many glasses of wine is sin. Well, I'm like, I don't know. How much do you weigh? How many times have you drank? <laughs> what's, your, what's your natural disposition? You know, in certain tribes uh, uh, of indigenous people in Alaska, alcoholism is so genetic, they're so genetically dispos- uh, disposed to it that it is illegal for alcohol to be sold in some of the villages because even, even the littlest amount, it's like heroin for them. They had to take aqua velva off the, off the shelves because people were drinking aftershave to, to get the fix. That's a significant problem. Probably the answer for them under the kingdom of God is zero glasses, a glass of water. I, what a dumb question, A. Uh, Chesterton wrote an article on the, on the godliness and joy of being buzzed. I kind of like that. But for me, kind of buzzed means probably going to go for a little more buzzed. So I, for us, it's know thyself, but you can't know thyself until you know thy God. And when you allow him who is holy to be the basis of your being, you now can actually enter into those complex questions that are, that are covered by nuance and gray and begin to move appropriately. So I'm not here to tell you what you can't watch. Some people are deeply, I knew a guy that said, I will only watch G-rated movies. If my kids can't watch it, then I shouldn't either. Well, man, that's problematic because there's lots of things that we probably should know about. That There is a gift in some news that's deeply troubling, (laughs) uh, but but I don't necessarily want my four-year-old thinking about it. I want to understand the world I live in. Um, and there is a certain maturity, but I get the concept. I'm gonna, I want to live a holy life. So I'm going to, and this was the thing with the Jesus movement that went too far. It's like, I'm never going to listen to Led Zeppelin again. But look what you left yourself with. <laughs> I mean, I could just give you the list. Do you know how heartbreaking it was for me to hear my song on the radio the first time and it was sandwiched between Carmen and Michael W. Smith? when all I wanted to be was Radiohead? It's a very heartbreaking reality for us as Christians. That is not sanctification. That is a parallel, bizarre universe where Christians have created a a sickening imitation of what the world will always do better. That's not the goal. You can't live in Portland and not be confronted with the world. And I'm not telling you you should listen to secular music and I don't think you should feel bad if you love worship music. You should only feel a little bad. No, I'm just joking. That you don't, no, you don't need to feel bad because every person is different. Some people's sensitivity to, to things are, are just way deeper than others. And that's why we should tread gently with one another. That's why we're not to be a stumbling block to one another. And by the way, stumbling others does not mean making them fall into the sin of what it is that you're doing. You always hear like, I don't wanna be a stumbling block for an alcoholic by drinking in front of him because it might lead him to drinking. No, a brand new Christian who's been an alcoholic probably has a very rigid view of alcoholism. The sin that you might lead them into is the sin of judgmentalism because, it, because they're new enough as a Christian that their world is much more black and white. It's far more likely that when you cause someone to stumble, you're just causing them to judge you for being, being not very thoughtful in front of them which I know I do every week when I preach by like just what I just said about even music. Uh, Here's the thing. Holiness is the outworking of sanctification, which means that we are allowing ourselves to be open, open open-handed. My life is your life, Lord. It's what I was sharing last week about the spirit of Jonah in my life. I, like Jonah, was trying to get away from Portland. I don't want to be a pastor in Portland anymore. I had this desire. I'm like, maybe I'll go back to Seattle. My wife and I love the Puget Sound. Maybe I'll go to California. But I think they've heard everything that I have to say. I don't want to, which you have. Um, but I guess the Lord thinks that you need to hear it more. Uh, and, that, you know, I just don't like the city anymore. It's not the same Portland that I fell in love with when I moved here. And I'm like, it's, it's different than the Portland of my childhood. It's different from the Portland of 2009, 10. Therefore, I'm going sanctification is me stopping and saying, Lord, where do you want me to go? And he's like, I already vomited you back up on the shore of Portland like five times, Josh. The answer is pretty clear. Be sanctified. Be dedicated to that purpose. Be faithful to your witness to me. Finally, 
Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit for a reason, because he's holy. And we have been told that we have been not left to our own devices. Jesus didn't just save us and then leave us to our own devices. He saved us. He regenerated us. We have been baptized into the kingdom of God, into the life of Christ himself. His spirit has come to make his home within us. This is why it's possible to grieve the spirit because when we continue to live a divided life, we are grieving the very one who is the source of our holiness. But when Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit, he's saying, are you going to allow the world and the things of the world to be the primary influencer of the things you do? Or are you going to allow the Holy Spirit to be the influencer of what you do? And to be filled with the Spirit is actually a command upon our lives. And this is the key to holiness, friends. The Spirit-filled life is not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit getting more of you. The moment you were born again, you got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. Because it's not something. He's someone. He's God. And he should be worshipped and submitted to. And our submission to him means that we will become a spirit-filled church, community. Which means that we will be an active witness to the living Christ because Christ has made his home in us. And when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You guys, right now, we're learning about a Jesus who is here. His spirit is with us. He is the source of holiness. Don't despair at your own futile attempts at white-knuckling your way up Jacob's ladder. The gospel is down to earth. God has come down and met us in our brokenness in Jesus. But the good news is he doesn't want to just leave us there. He actually is a holy God, which means he wants to be the lifter of our heads, and he wants to lead us toward an ever-increasing intimacy with him. This is why the goal of the Christian life, our holiness, is not a sinning less. It's about learning to love more. It's not about arriving at some kind of destination. It's about knowing knowing him and that's why it says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and we close here but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth we have received power we are told that we have not been given a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of self-control. And it is that spirit that makes us holy as we are filled with him every day. Every day we must make the decision, I surrender to you, Jesus, and your spirit working in and through us. Holy Spirit, come, move in and through my life that people might see the undivided God work through the mixture that is me. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. I pray right now that we would have a deeper understanding of what holiness is. That we would allow you, who is the holy God, to be wholly alive in us. That we would get out of the way so that you could be fully seen. And I just encourage everyone where they're sitting to just open up your hands. Hands faced up toward the heavens. This is a, it's a posture of, it's, it's, it's maybe even more, uh, if you feel like raising your hands, like a child raising their hands up to a parent to be picked up. This is essentially what we need. But the open hands means that we are empty-handed. We're not raising the fist at God. We're not here to fight with him or wrestle with him. We are here to open our hands to a God who has graciously opened up his hands, hands that were pierced for us, hands that bled for us, and hands that now embrace us. To say, Jesus, embrace us with your love. Holy Spirit, come upon our lives. Holy Spirit, make us holy. We submit to that work. Holy Spirit, show us the things in us that put us at odds with you. Whether it's carnality, Lord, whether it's pride, whether it's legalism, whether it's despair, whether it is lovelessness, or if it's all of those things and things I'm not even listing. Lord, in spite of us, would you 
reveal those areas in us that need to be surrendered to you because you didn't ask for this or that part of us, you asked for our whole selves. And so we just simply present our broken, messy selves to you and we ask that you would use us in spite of ourselves because you are a God of love and we want to claim that love, not only for ourselves, but that we might be conduits of it to others. Make us the witnessing church that your church is meant to be and forgive us for turning your gospel into some sort of self-serving reality. Lord, we want your gospel to serve you, the living God who is reconciling the world to himself. And so with open hands, we receive that commission that we might become ambassadors of reconciliation. We love you, Jesus. Forgive us, cleanse us, make us new. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.